Breaking the stigma of addiction. This is Zach's life, a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside, inside and outside of their addiction. addiction. Hosted by Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. Hello, everyone. We're here today. Uh, my guest is Cherry Finney. Hi, Cherry. Hi, Jim. It is so great uh, to have you here. I want to uh, uh, tell everyone. I th- I want to. I'm thinking the first time, the first time we met, we had an appreciation dinner. I think that was it. It was it was last year, and it was just about a year ago. Yes. Uh, last November, where our foundation invited, oh, I don't know, a, a, a dozen or so um, uh, people that worked in the in the local recovery scene, and you were one of the people that came and. Uh, and it, you were uh, so passionate about the work that you were doing. Uh, you were so uh, eager to make a difference in what happened. And that's what, that's what uh, s- stood out to me. Well, that and the fact is that you had as, as many tattoos as everyone else in the room altogether. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. saying so. So those were the, okay, there were two things that stood out. <laughs> Was so, it, it wasn't the shoes? <laughs> okay, there were three <laughs> things that stood out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you 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 definitely have a a very bright, vibrant personality on the inside and uh, on the out. Yes. <laughs> so that's good. So so, uh, Cherry, tell us. I, I so I've kind of gave a lead in right there about a whole bunch about you that I saw. Like in the first, when you walk into a room, you know people see you, and immediately I'm sure they start forming a lot of opinions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so t- tell me what that's like, and then tell me about like who Cherry really is. So my grandfather always told me that I had presence when I walked into a room, <laughs> and I never really understood what that meant until I started to become an adult, and especially after I got all the tattoos that I have. Um, most of my tattoos have meaning to me. Um, pretty much all of them do. They just have meaning for different reasons. And a lot of people, when they see my tattoos, you know, my neck is tattooed, my face is tattooed, my hands are tattooed. They automatically assume that like I'm some kind of criminal or drug addict or, you know, some kind of negative part of society. And the reality is, is, you know, I'm a college student, I'm a drug and alcohol counselor, and, you know, I'm just a very passionate and compassionate person. And I think that, you know, it really shows once you start speaking to me about how passionate I am about what I do in this world. So, so and, and let me say, as, as hard as I fight in our foundation, and, and as you know, the mission of our foundation is to end the stigma of addiction. And part of that stigma is that how we view people or how we don't view people. So people would have never viewed my son as, as someone, people that didn't know that he was using had no idea because he looked, you know, you saw the pictures of him. He's, you know, yeah, like he's getting ready to go to business school at Fresno state. That's how he, that's how he looked. Right. When you came in, because most of the people that I meet in the recovery community, I would say over 50 to 60% of them are, are ex addicts, right. That are, that yeah. are, that are, that are still working in, in their, uh, you know, they're not in their active addiction anymore, but that's what brought them into the, that's what brought them into the into the counseling world, and so I'm one of those guilty ones that saw you when you came in the door. I thought, "Wow, she's got a story," you know, because because everybody else, and and frankly, it's mostly men in the field, right? That are that are in the counseling part, or that have part ownership in companies, or that are are working, or, you know, working directly uh, in the, in the rehabs. You know, they're 
you know, and, and the, the, all the ink that they carry, you know, comes from, you know, most of it is from a time in their life when, when things were real dark for them, right? Or they were in yeah. prison and, and that's where it comes from. And it, it tells us long sorted uh, history and stories. So when I saw you, I assumed that that's where, that's where your past was until you told me today yeah. that that wasn't it. But the thing that was, that was very different that first night, if you remember, and we all took opportunities to share things that we wanted to see in the recovery community and, and, and the changes and the positivity that we wanted to bring about, you were absolutely the most vocal and had the most presence <laughs> and, and, and really, and really shared, you know, some of the most dynamic ideas. And so it was clear that, that your mind was no longer affected by all the drugs that you had done from what I thought, right. Yeah. That you were really sharp. And now I understand, you know, and I thought, wow, good for her. She's going back to college. She wants to make, you know, but that's not the case at all. This is just part of your, this is, this is the part of, of, of your life's cycle and progress of, of, of where you're at. Absolutely. So, so, so tell us then. So if all of this that I see, if the trajectory of your life isn't about your recovery, what's the purpose? Because people usually just don't wake up going to high school. They're graduating from high school, and someone says, "Hey, hey, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? You know what? I think I'm going to be a, <laughs> I think I'm going to be a drug counselor, and make minimum wage, you know, and 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 drive, you know, hundreds of miles uh, every week, you know, back and forth because I know you have a super long commute to, yeah. to come in." people that have that commitment usually are people that have found themselves in that life somehow. Right. And so this is part of their recovery that they do that. So why are you here? So initially it started out that my husband thought I should go to college so that if anything ever happened to him, that I'd be able to take care of myself. Um, as I had mentioned before, you know, I, I had anxiety and, you know, past trauma issues that I was working on my mental health for. So my my initial idea was that I was going to go to school to be a mental health counselor. And after talking to my husband about it, he goes, you know, your brother's an addict. Um, You you have a lot of knowledge about drugs because you've used a lot of drugs in the party scene and, you know, in your early 20s. And you went to school to be a pharmacy technician. So you have all this knowledge that you're not using. He goes, why don't you become a drug counselor? There's always going to be people that need your help. There's always going to be people who have addiction issues that, that, that you could help if you go into that field. So, you know, I'm super extra. I decided to take all the drug counseling classes in one semester, <laughs> and um, it kind of clicked for me. Um, you know, as I was taking those classes, I, I realized that I had a purpose from God, that, you know, it was meant for me to become a drug counselor so that I could help people. And, you know, maybe I'm not able to help my brother with his addiction, but I'm able to help other people. And the more that I learned about drug addiction and going to school for it, the more I realized like this is God's purpose for me in life. And this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I pursued it. I kind of fast tracked it, got my degree really fast, started working in the field as, um, at a Medi-Cal facility, I worked there for about four and a half years um, before I decided to go to Aspire, which is how I ended up meeting you. Right, right. And and just uh, t- tell our audience that doesn't know what Aspire is, who, who they are. And- so Aspire is a local um, drug counseling company. They do uh, drug counseling and mental health. Um, they have facilities all over California. Um, the Fresno location is the one where I have worked at for the last uh, about year and three months. Yeah, so. yeah. All right. 
All right. Yeah. And, and again, just so, so happy to have, uh, to have met you there. And, you know, I, I find in, in the recovery community uh, in, in Fresno and in the Central Valley that most, most all of the, uh, the different organizations work very well together. So, so we're, we're doing, we're still doing a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff together all the time. And so, and so that's a, that's a nice, that's a nice feel. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's important because, you know, as my boss Jerome says, we're all pieces of a larger puzzle, all working together for the same goal, you know, so it's important for us to work with each other in the community because, you know, even if programs are, you know, competing for the same clientele, the reality is, is we're all working together to help people get off of drugs and alcohol to better their lives and to fix, you know, the problems that have been created from their use. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, Cherry, I, I'd like for us to, to shift our conversation because most, most of the people that I, that, that I interview here, many of them have, they have a history of, of, of use that's real severe. And so I kind of get their story and then about how they recover and, and, you know, and that's, you know, hopefully if someone's listening to that, you know, they may see themselves in that story, yeah. you know, and there may be something about that, that, that sparks with them. You, you know, the, 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 well, hey, if, hey, if this person, uh, you, know, you know, like one of the last people I had, you know, if, hey, if this person who robbed three banks, if he can turn himself around, then I can turn myself around, you know, or if this person that attempted suicide can, you know, make a difference. I know I felt like that I can make a difference. One of the things that you and I have in common is that we both love someone who has an addiction, so maybe we can take a few minutes and talk about what that is like from a family's perspective, because there's a lot of families out there, and there's someone listening there right now that they have someone that they love, and for you it's your brother. Yes. For me it was my son. Uh, let's talk a, a little bit about what that what that process is is like and now not where you're at now because you've educated yourself a a lot i've educated myself a lot in three years and you've had you've had years that you've worked on your degrees and and you've educated that what was it like in initially when you saw your brother going off the rails and you loved him and you wanted to to help him and and you just couldn't figure out what it was let's kind of talk about that that process because i think families are going to see themselves in that and then maybe we can offer some some hope for them about you know what they can do for them for themselves to get stronger and the best things that they can do to to help their loved one. So honestly, it's heartbreaking. You know, you watch somebody you love start to go deeper and deeper into addiction, and no matter what you say to them, you know they can't see it. That and that's something that I, I really struggled with with him is you know. For, for me, you know, growing up, we grew up together, and when he started using drugs, you know, he was my big brother. He was my role model. He's the guy I looked up to, so I started using drugs, too. Fortunately for me, you know, it didn't turn into addiction for me, you know, but him, it did, and when I saw it start to turn into addiction for him, there was nothing I could say to him to convince him of that, you know. It, it was always the same thing, you know, oh, I've got this under control. I can quit anytime I want to. It's not that big of a deal, and I don't think he realized how much it hurt me and our family to watch him 
suffer through that, you know, and it led to him having criminal behavior and that criminal behavior led to him being incarcerated and he would get sober while he was in incarceration and, you know, he'd be really excited and he would get out and he would look really good and he'd be really happy and be on the right track. And then he would fall back into that old pattern of behavior. And no matter how much we would tell him like, Hey, like this is not good for you, or you need to work on this, or you need to get into treatment or you need help. You know, he wouldn't hear it because in his mind, it wasn't an issue. So, so, so did you feel, and, and again, I think maybe our relationship as a parent is different than yours as a sibling. But I remember thinking that, that why, why can't Zach see how much we love him? Why is he unwilling? He, even, even when, when things were getting bad for him and then he, like you said, he'd get cleaned up. He'd say, I'll never do this again. Right. I'd never, what would, what would cause him? What would cause your brother to go back and do that? He saw that it was hurting you. He saw how much you loved him. Uh, you know, and, and I mean, I, I mean, I know the answer or I, I know what my answers are now you know, for me, but I know that you had to feel those same things. Oh, definitely. You know, it was constantly like, why, why can't he see, you know, the way that this is affecting everybody around him? Why can't he see how much we're hurting to watch him go through this? And I think that that's one of the things with addiction is it makes people blind to what's really going on. You know, he's so focused on himself and his struggles and what he's going through and his mental health and his abandonment issues and everything else he's got going on. But, but, but people don't see like the things that you just mentioned there, the mental health, the abandonment issues. They, they see the addict. Yes. Why doesn't he just stop? And that's the thing is that's, that's a symptom. You know, being addicted is a symptom to a larger problem. You know, if you think about it, like why do people use? They use to escape. They use to feel better. They use to mask their mental health. They use for stress relief. You know, and, and the reality is, is that use is a symptom of some underlying problem and people don't see that, you know, and, and it wasn't until I started working on my own abandonment issues and my, my issues that I had that, you know, came from the same childhood he had that I realized like that was the cause of his symptom of addiction, you know, but I've, you know, I've had that conversation with him and, you know, he straight up told me like, I, I'm not going to work on my mental health. I'm not crazy. This is mom's fault. You know, I'm, I'm this way because of her, right. you know, and, and that's part of a defense mechanism called blaming, you know, instead of taking accountability for his choices that led to his addiction, you know, he'd rather put it off on somebody else than put in the work to actually fix it, you know, and, and, all I can do as his sister is keep reminding him of the work that I put in, keep showing him how, you know, my life has improved because of the things that I've done and keep reminding him that he has that same potential and that same capability that he just has to be willing to put in the work to, to get there. So, so Cherry, and again, I have my guess in my mind, but if I asked you what percentage of of people that identify as addicts or that, and that, that would meet the criteria under substance use disorder of that full addiction, have a co-occurring mental health issue that have a mental health issue that runs right alongside of that, that contributes to it and, and is, and is part of that. It's approximately 50%. Wow. See, I would have guessed it would have even been higher. Wow. But, but, 
but it's still 50, 50 percent. Yeah, approximately 50 percent of people with addiction issues have a mental health disorder and vice versa. Approximately 50 percent of people with a mental health disorder have an addiction issue. Um, the difference there is that one is usually primary to the other. What's unfortunate is we never know which came first. You know, as somebody who treats addiction, you don't know if having mental health issues caused the addiction or if the addiction caused mental health issues. And that involves deep diving back into, you know, whether there's past traumas or experiences or, you know, prior diagnosis or anything like that. So, but in the case of uh, working with, with children, so when I, think of, when I think back about Zach, you know, we know that he, that he dealt with depression. And that, that depression, he we know that he had ADD. So those were all, those were already precursors that that probably I and I've always thought most likely made him more susceptible to addiction. Because as soon as he then began experimenting, like most teenagers do, he felt better. Yeah, and and that's what it is. It's like, you know, I I mentioned that I'm not in recovery from addiction. But for me, my drug use was self-medication for my mental health issues. And so it wasn't until I started working on my mental health that I stopped wanting to use drugs and alcohol because I felt better by working on my mental health. And I realized that, you know, I was using to feel better, to deal with my anxiety, to deal with my PTSD, to deal with you know, my mental health issues that I'd had since childhood that had never really been properly addressed. And, and part of that problem is, is, you know, as a teenager, I got put on medication. I tried the medication. It didn't work. Immediately, I decided, well, if that doesn't work, then I can't take meds and just stopped everything. And I, I, th- I think that, you know, that's one of the battles that people have with their mental health that can lead to addiction is, you know, that the substance makes you feel better no matter what you go and try and get help for your mental health and you know you find that this medication doesn't work doctor puts you on a different one this medication doesn't work doctor puts you on a different one this medication doesn't work and then they give up and you have to keep trying I went through a series of three years of trying different medications and different medications and different medications before I found a combination that worked for me you know, once I was on that medication combination for a couple of years, then I started applying my coping skills and, you know, the things that I knew to do to make me feel better. And now I don't take medication. You know, I'm at a point in my life where if I get a little bit of anxiety, I practice deep breathing or I practice meditation or do some kind of visualization or I go for a run, you know, and I, I do these different things and I've gotten to a point where, where I don't need the medication anymore. And I think a lot of people feel like, you know, if they start taking a medication, either it's just not going to work and they give up on trying them all together, or they decide that I don't want to be on medication forever and they just give up on taking it. And the reality is, is some people might need to be on medication for the rest of their lives, depending on their brain chemistry and, you know, what they're taking it for. And then some people can take medication for a little while and build those coping skills and mechanisms that they can use to feel better in life without the medication and get to a point where they don't need it anymore. And that's, I think that's, that's very important to, to, to realize. And from my own experience, and, and I've spoke a time or two before, I know to a lot of people, maybe never on this show before, but uh, about three or four months after Zach passed, my, my grief was so, it was so traumatic and things were so, so dark and painful for me uh, that uh, I ended up a, going on an antidepressant 
and, and I had never dealt with antidepressants before, but it, it became just part of a regimen that I, that I followed for, for a full year. And, uh, and I'll tell you from the very day that I started taking it, there was a marked difference in me being able to get through the day without, now there were still days that I would break down, you know, don't misunderstand, but it wasn't a constant, uh, every 15, 20 minutes, you, you know, not being able to breathe, just, just being in such a, a grief state that I, that I couldn't, I couldn't function. And that medication, let me, let me break through that, that time. And then after about a year, I thought to myself, well, you know, you know, Hey, I've been doing some other work. I've been, you know, going through counseling, you know, in a saw time I was doing more work in the foundation. I was talking about it, you know, more often. And, and, and so I decided to, you know, to, to go ahead and titrate off the, the medication. And, and it's been, it's been, I mean, there's, there's still issues that, you know, with, with, with grief that there, but it's nothing like it was before. So I guess I say that to validate what you said. Once you start, you don't necessarily, not everyone has to stay on medication forever. And I know so many kids, when I think about, I remember Zach saying from time to time, I just don't like the way that this makes me feel, right? I, I hear that a lot sometimes. So, but there are other, there are other options. You just have to, you just have to check out yeah, so, other regimes and so there's a common misconception that when you have mental health issues, taking the medication makes you better. That is not the case. You know, medication is not a magic fix all for the symptoms of your mental health. Medication is meant to be like a band aid for you to use while you put in the work to deal with your mental health. That means going to therapy, that means learning coping skills, that means practicing self care. You know, and a lot of people don't understand that, you know, in this day and age, because of the way big pharma is, you know, a lot of people think, oh, if I just take a pill, it's going to make everything all better. But, you know, that's not how it works. It, you, you, a lot of times, you know, and I learned this in pharmacy tech school about 12 years ago, you know, a lot of medications are meant to get you to a certain level so that you are capable of putting in the work to better yourself. You know, like benzodiazepines, for example, Xanax, um, Valium, uh, Ativan, Klonopins, those are not meant to take anxiety away and be an everyday medication. Those are medications that were made to lessen your symptoms of anxiety so that you could put in the work to practice the coping skills like deep breathing, like meditation, like exercise, things that are going to help calm you down and that you can use over time instead of just relying on a pill every time you get that anxiety. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. They believe that, you know, if I just take this medication, I should be better. But that's not the way it works. It, it really isn't. And, you know, it, it reminds me of this this um, story my husband's always told me that I use a lot in counseling. Um, you know, you don't pray to God to fill your storehouse and then not build a storehouse for him to fill. Mm. You know, so so same thing. You don't take a medication to fix your your mental health but not put in the work to fix your mental health. And that means developing those coping skills, going to therapy, diving deep into your life experiences and your trauma and figuring out like what led to this in the first place. Why am I having these symptoms? You know, not just let me just turn these symptoms off. Wow. That, that is uh, such important information. And I've never heard it explained. I've never heard it explained that way. You know, again, that was my, that's what happened for me. Yeah. But, but you know what? No one told me that that's what I should expect or what I could do with that time. And I think that, you know, 
I might be a little biased on this, but I think that's partly, you know, big pharma's way of keeping people on medication and keeping those profits rolling in, you know, and I, I get it. But, you know, I also know that like people need to be educated on the fact that like you can't just take a medication like, you know, let's use diabetes as an example. You know, you don't just take insulin for the rest of your life. You're supposed to take insulin and change your diet and start exercising and putting in the work to be healthier. So, you know, same thing with your mental health. You don't just take the medication for the rest of your life. You take the medication in conjunction with doing things to better yourself and to become stronger and to have those skills that you need. Wow. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, it's like all of a sudden, uh, uh, Dr. Finney is uh, here with us uh, today. Not yet. Uh, talking not yet. about the... <laughs> no, I'll get there, though. I'm actually, you know, I, I, I joke around about this with my husband, but I do plan on getting a PhD one day, and I'm going to get a personalized license plate. This is Dr. Cherry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. Wow. So, okay, so 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 now we've, we, we've kind of come through this timetable. We know why you started, what you... So now, now take us from the time in... in it sounds like your 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 brother has has had some problems with the law, and so he's been incarcerated. Where is his situation now, and 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 where where are you now? To talk about the whole family dynamic now of of where of of your relationship with him, what you're hoping uh, to have happen, and and where you see things in the future. Okay, so um, he's been in and out of prison for the last fifteen years. Um, he's currently doing a 24-month term right now in a prison out in Florida um, for a petty theft charge. That um, it's it's really sad. So he did he did 10 years in prison out there after causing a car accident while under the influence in a stolen car that injured a 15-year-old girl. Mm. Um, he got out of prison. Um, they what they did is they gave him five and five, which is five years in, five years on parole. While he was out on parole, he um, stole a car, got caught driving on a suspended. They put him back in for the rest of his term. So he finished out that 10 years in prison. He got out. He was sober. He was doing great. Um, not sure exactly what happened because he was in Florida, but he ended up back on drugs. At some point, um, my dad convinced him to come back to California. He came back to California. Uh, my dad got him a job where he works, uh, was giving him a place to live in his apartment, had plans to leave the apartment to my brother since they have the same name. He'd already talked to the apartment manager about switching the lease over to my brother when my dad moved into the house he just bought. And um, my brother got out here, you know, started running around with homeless people. Um, his drug use escalated. He, he went from just doing meth to doing meth and heroin, and he was shooting it in his neck. And so, um, you know, out here in, in Fresno, um, there's drug court. And what drug court does is when people get in trouble with the law and there are drugs involved, they, they send them to treatment before they send them to jail. So me and my dad developed a plan to basically let my brother get in trouble running around homeless. You know, he lost his job working with my dad. The, the boss fired him because he wasn't doing his job. My dad kicked him out because he kept stealing stuff, but he was still letting him sleep on the porch because he had nowhere else to go. He just didn't want him in the house. And, um, you know, he, he just got heavier and heavier into drugs. Well, um, I was working at a drug program right around the corner from where my dad lived. So I was going and taking my brother lunch and food and checking on him, making sure he was all right. He had called my mom and convinced her that um, he was starving 
that he had no food and no place to stay and just all this stuff. So my mom bought him a plane ticket back to Florida where he got back out there. They had a huge blowout um, and she kicked him out and he started living on the streets. Um, He went and got a tent and was camping in the woods out there, you know, basically running around with homeless drug addicts, just getting more and more deeper into his drug use. And um, him and his girlfriend committed a uh, evading police. They ran a stop sign. And when the cop tried to pull him over, they tried to run. He had a suspended license. So they put him on probation. Um, While he was on probation, they went to a Walmart and um, stole some things and got caught. They put him in county jail. Um, While he was awaiting in county jail for sentencing, um, they got a, so I guess they had gone to another Walmart and took a bike and changed the price tag on it and tried to buy it and self-checkout and leave with it and got caught at the door and just disappeared, like ran off. And um, the cop that was investigating recognized my brother's girlfriend on the camera and used her Facebook to identify my brother. So they added the second petty theft charge with the first one, and since he was already on probation, they gave him 24 months in prison for that. And so he's been in there since last November, and um, he gets out next July. And um, basically, you know, he says that he's sober in there, um, but every time he's ever gotten out of incarceration, he's sober, you know, for a little while, and then he goes right back into using. So, so Cherry, what would... What would cause, and now I'm going to ask for your professional opinion, again, because you work in the field and in your course of study. What would cause someone like your brother or someone like him that they get clean in prison or, or, or not, but, but even, even if they do, he was clean when he came to Fresno or when he came back to the Valley, had a job, had a place to stay, and then in, in your words, he started running around with homeless people. What would cause somebody to do that over and over and over. He's not dealing with his problems. So he's basically being a dry drunk. When he gets sober, he's not changing his behaviors. He's not working on his mental health. He's not working on anything to better himself in any way. He has developed, because of his addiction and his incarcerations, a sense of entitlement that the world now owes him something because of all the struggle and strife that he's been through. And, and you know, in, in the addiction field, you know, we say the only thing you have to change is everything. And he's not changing anything when he gets sober. He's not changing his mindset. He's not changing what he's doing. He's not changing who he hangs out with. So, so it's, but it, it's not, it, it's not that, you know, he's sitting in prison and he has a date. Hey, I'm going to get on this date. I can't wait to go back out and be homeless. That's not, his no. mindset isn't that he wants to be a homeless drug addict. That's just where his set of circumstances, because he hasn't put in the other work, because he still hasn't yet, we'll talk about the first step, you know, ad- admitted to himself that, that he's powerless yes. over, over his addiction, right? Because, it, because he, he does suffer from, it sounds like, from, a, from, from, an, from an addiction. Yeah. So it's for, for him now, it's not just a, a choice of whether he can, you know, have a beer on the weekend while he's watching a football game something like that when when problems come the way he solves his problems is by running to some kind of some kind of drug yeah and and what what it is is you know um drugs and alcohol give us instant gratification but sobriety does not you know being in recovery is hard being sober is hard being normal is hard you know life is not always easy 
um, everything's a struggle. Everything takes work. You know, nothing's just handed to anybody on a silver platter. You have to go out and you have to put in work for it. And I think that when things start to get hard for him, that's his method of coping is, you know what, this is too hard. I'm going to go get high. Getting high is easier. It makes me feel better. You know, I can do it and instantly I feel great. You know, and I, I think that that's part of the addict mentality is, is you know, you, you get addicted to that instant gratification. And when you try to be sober and it is work, you know, not every day is a good day. Some days are going to be worse than others. And, and well, that's one hell of a sales pitch, Cherry. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but you know what? See, I, I think that's part of the. So, as a parent, when I'm dealing with my child who's struggling, I would either want to sugarcoat it or I'd want to say, hey, it, it's going to be all right. There's, again, that was the denial that I, that I was in. And, and so there was an absence of the reality. Yeah. You know, or if I did want to, if, if I was going to use some reality, the, the reality was some kind of a shock, uh, you know, f- you know, factor that, hey, if you do this one more time, you're going to, you know, end up uh, toothless and homeless, you know, and, and, you know, which may happen, yeah. right? But that's not, you know, he would go out and use again, and guess what? That didn't happen, right? So that, mm-hmm. so that wasn't it. So I, I got to say, I, I think your clients are very fortunate, the ones that have a chance to work with you, because you, you bring a, you bring a, a sense of reality that's that's balanced and and it and it comes with understanding i mean it's heavily balanced with with understanding and and empathy you know on the one hand but then on the other hand it's like you know what it's hard i thought you were describing a diet there for a minute you know when you when you were talking about you know you know it it, it doesn't always taste good yeah. and it's not always easy it's just hard work but if you put in the hard work over time you can change yeah you, you can you can change yourself and and so wow what a I mean, what, what an insight. I, I love the way, again, that you phrase it. So is this, when you're, when you're able to work, when you're able to, to work with clients in, 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 your, in your job situation, is this kind of, kind of your mode of discussion with them is, 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 is giving them the truth, giving them the facts of how it is, but then I, I, somehow you still want to support them because sometimes someone needs a little something else and just a kick in the ass that's, you know, telling them it's going to be hard. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, a lot of um, people in recovery have expectations that once you get sober, life just gets better. And the reality is, is that's not true. You know, yeah, it gets better in a sense, but it gets better because you put the work in, because you're practicing self-care, because you're working on your mental health, because you're trying to get a job, because you're trying to make amends with your family. You know, it doesn't just like, you know, it, it goes back to the instant gratification thing. You know, you, you feel good when you use, but when you stop using, you don't feel good for a while. And a lot of people expect that you should just because you're not using. And, and that's not the way it works. It takes time. Your brain has to rebalance itself. The chemicals in your brain have to rebalance themselves. You have to do things that set those chemicals back off in the right way. And that takes a lot of work. And I think that, you know, letting the clients know that when I'm, when I'm giving them treatment and I'm doing group sessions and individual sessions with them, you know, I, 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 it teaches them not to have those expectations that just because you're sober life gets better because, you know, you, you have to put in the work for that to be true. And if, if you think by just not using everything's going to be gravy, like you're going to be sadly disappointed or you're going to end up relapsing because of the fact that it's not as easy of a piece of cake as you right. thought it was going to be. Right. Right. Wow. 
Well, I tell you, this has been uh, uh, th- this has been in- informative for me. And again, I think it, the, the the more uh, clinicians there are like you that are that are in the field, uh, the more hope uh, that I have for uh, for clientele and for patients that that are going through treatment because this is exactly the information I believe that they need to to hear, and it's and it's delivered in a way that. That, that is very, I, I can only imagine that your clients come back to you years later or months later and the, the ones that have relapsed and the ones that haven't, and, and they're thankful for the time that they had with you because they know you're not BSing them. They know that you're being straight with them. Absolutely. And I do have a lot of clients that, you know, I run into out in the world and they'll tell me, you know, it's because of you that I got a job. It's because of you that I'm sober. It's because of you, because of you, because of you. And I always tell them, actually, it's not because of me. It's because of you you put in the work, you know, I, I laid out the, the help for you. I, I put it out there. It didn't mean you had to take it. You chose to take it. You chose to put the work in. You chose to apply what I was telling you, which means that you did that. You were successful. Yeah. You got that job. You did the things that you did to do. You know, don't give me credit, give yourself credit because the reality is, is I'm just planting the seeds. You're choosing to water them. And, and, you know, and, and that's like my whole thing is, you know, I've always said, you know, I'm, I'm planting seeds so that I can save lives one day at a time. And that's actually what made me accept the job with Aspire when I took it is because their slogan is planting seeds, saving lives, you All know? Right. And so, you know, my, my, my husband, you know, he always tells me like, you're a, you're a superhero, you're saving lives one day at a time. And I go, I do that by planting seeds. You know, I, I'm not the one that waters those seeds. I just put them there. You know, it may take years for that seed to get watered. Maybe I plant that seed and that person goes into three other treatment programs before they decide to water it. You know, the reality is, is I'm not the one that puts in the work. I just lay it out there for them. If they choose to take it, then they need to give themselves credit for doing that because the reality is, is they chose to put in the work. And, you know, if they didn't put in the work, then they wouldn't be successful. Yeah, that's incredible. Cherry, th- thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I want to give you a chance to, to speak to our audience. And if there's one thought that you want to leave them with today, uh, I want to give you that, that opportunity to, to, to let them know. So one, one thought that I like to leave with people is, uh, you know, if you're suffering from addiction yourself, don't ever give up on yourself. Always have faith that you can do it. Always have faith that you can be successful because the reality is, is you can you just have to put in the work to do it. And if you ever struggle to have faith in yourself, know that I got enough for everybody. You can always borrow some from me. And for those of the family of the addicted, don't give up on your family. You know, don't like set boundaries and don't be an enabler. But at the same time, you know, continue giving them encouragement, continue giving them faith and don't chastise them for their drug or alcohol use because they're doing that to themselves enough as it is. You know, what they need is your encouragement that they can be successful, that they can stop. What they need is your love to know that, you know, you haven't given up on the fact that they can change because that's going to be important. As long as somebody else continues to have faith in them, they'll continue to have faith in themselves. And that leads to their potential for change and the possibility of them getting into recovery and, and possibly saving their life one day. Awesome. Awesome. Cherry, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and as always, I'm going to encourage you to go find someone today in your life. Let them know that you love them. This is Zach's dad. This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation, 
and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at jim at ZacharyHortonFoundation.org.